uh, please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. Our teaching will be centered on this verse. For those of you that are visiting, we've been going through a series in the book of James on biblical spirituality, spirituality in general. And every week I come uh, here and I have to plead your forgiveness because, again, there's so much in these first 11 verses in James that I feel like uh, you should ask for your money back when I'm done um, because it's so rich and deep. It's, it's, it's like I feel like when I come to the book of James, just, just the smallest passages feel like I'm wading in a deep ocean. But yet I can only scoop out a cup and give it to you. Um, and so, so you'll have to beg my forgiveness, but if there's something in this passage that, um, that you need greater clarity on, I'd be happy to go through that. But I, I'm going to stick to James' central point in, in this passage. And, and so that, that's what I'm going to do this morning. So I just had to say that um, uh, up front. Well, uh, James chapter 4, verse 1 through uh, 12. Hear now the words of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask. And you do not receive because you act wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Amen. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves therefore, uh, before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass will wither. And the flower will fade. But the word of the Lord, the gospel, is the message that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's pray. Father, indeed, we are your people. You have called us by your name. Bless us now. May we experience joy 
and rest, even as we already have in your word. Holy Spirit, you are here. Please, these are your people. Speak to them in ways that I cannot. I have but one thought, but you know and you can search their hearts to know exactly what they need. That is walled off from you. It is never walled off from you. Speak to your people now in ways even this sermon cannot, even this teaching cannot. Dig deep and root out that thing that so easily destroys us. Bless them now and bless me as I teach in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We've come to chapter in James that I think is the most important chapter in the entire book. In fact, if you were to read through the book of James, this is what James have been, has been building towards. Scholars recognize this as the thesis statement in the book of James, the purpose of why James wrote. And here's the reason why. Remember, James, at the very beginning, has been concerned with our spiritual maturity. James has been telling us as a people, he's been, our, he's been our guide, as it were, telling us that the goal of the Christian life is spiritual maturity. That's the whole reason why we became believers. God is maturing us in the faith. And we should be leading a life toward spiritual maturity. What is spiritual maturity? I'll remind you. It's not only believing that the gospel is true. It's acting as if the gospel is true. It's not just saying you're a Christian, but it's acting like you're a Christian. It's not enough to make a mere profession of faith. You have to be in possession of this faith. It's not enough for you to be a Christian on Sunday. You are called to be a believer every day. Don't wait until you get to heaven to be godly. Be godly now. Be godly now. And as James looks at his congregation, he sees signs not spiritually mature. He sees signs of spiritual immaturity. What are those spiritual immature things, these signposts that James is seeing? First of all, James telling, tells us we channel anger and frustration to work the righteousness of God. That's a sign of spiritual immaturity. When we say we're a believer, but we don't act like it, that's a sign of spiritual immaturity. James says, look, if you're partial to certain people, the sin of racism, classism, ageism, sexism, and you are treating certain people better than others. That's a sign of spiritual maturity, immaturity. James says, look, if you use fiery speech and duplicitous speech, that's a sign of spiritual immaturity. And now in chapter 4, James tells us this, that signs are signs of a deeper problem, a heart problem that's lodged deep down inside of us. And for the rest of our time together, I want to talk about that heart problem. 
I want to talk about what that hard problem is dangerous, why it's so corrosive. And then the third thing I want to talk about is how the Holy Spirit, through the power of union with Christ, can deliver us from that hard problem. What is that hard problem? How dangerous this hard problem is. And what the Holy Spirit does in us through Jesus Christ to deliver us from this hard problem. Are you ready? Look at verse number one. He tells us what the hard problem is. James says, look, what causes wars and fightings among you? What what causes you to be spiritually immature? Is it not this, that your passions are at war in you? Now, we read the word passions, and that means nothing to us. Passions, okay, pastor, what does passions mean? In James' day, that word that he used, that Greek word that he used, stood out to all his readers. And it's actually going to stand out to you. Because the Greek word that James uses for passions is the word hedone. Or some of us pronounce it hedone. And if that sounds familiar, it should. Because that's where we get our word hedonist or hedonism. Now, when you and I hear the word hedonist or hedonism, what do we think about? Well, we have this imagery of someone who is maybe ungodly, perhaps someone who engages in licentious behavior. But in James's day, hedonism or hedonist was a blank term to mean pleasure. And hear me. Pleasure is not a sin. But what James is saying is the object of your pleasure is where the sin happens. A hedonist in James's day was someone where the object of pleasure was themselves. They lived for themselves. Everything was in reference to them. They were selfish. They thought envious thoughts. They would trample over any and everyone to get what they want. That was the hedonist. The best example of this in the Bible, at least from my perspective, is the story of the prodigal son. All of us know this story. This is a story familiar to us. In the story of the prodigal son, the son had everything from the father. He had a great with the father everything that the father had belonged to him he was in union with the father he worked to please his father but one day he woke up and he said i don't want to please my father anymore i want to please myself and what does he do you all know he asked for his inheritance and when he got all of it the bible says he rushed out and immediately began to spend each and every dollar he had on pleasing who? Himself. Himself. And Jesus, there's a, there's a little detail in the story that if you're not careful, you miss. At the end of him spending all of his money, Jesus slipped in this one phrase, and there was a famine in the land. 
And that was intentional because Jesus was trying to say at the end of all of our hedonistic desires, our desires to please ourselves, our desires to get our own way, at the end of the day, it leads to barrenness. It leads to famine. There is no fruit that comes from life lived to please yourself. That's the point of that narrative, at least one of the points in that narrative. I don't have time to deal with all the points in that narrative, but the point that I'm trying to make is that captures the hedonistic spirit. Now, the hedonistic spirit is alive and well in our day, and it's seen in our spirit of entitlement and our autonomous nature. I'm an American. No one can tell me what to do. I'm an American. Nobody can tell me how to spend my money. No one can tell me that I need to come to church every Sunday. Who are you to tell me where I should go and how I should dress? I'm an American. That spirit of entitlement and that spirit of autonomy where you think no one has the right to speak into your life, tell you what to do, where to go, how to act, that's a hedonistic spirit. And that's the spirit that James is saying here, we need to be on guard from. Imagine a community of believers where we all have that hedonistic spirit. That no one is willing to submit to one another. Imagine a marriage like that. Where we're selfish and we act selfishly. And no one can speak in anybody's life because we know it all. We study it all. James is saying that spirit leads to wars and fighting among you. Most importantly, James is saying that that spirit is anti-gospel. The very nature of a gospel spirit is found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, on the way down. When he talks, when Paul is talking about Jesus, when he says, Let this mind be in you, was also in Christ Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, did not thought equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, laying aside his form as God. Taking up a form of man, of a servant. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross that captures the essence of the Christian spirit. That it's self-sacrifice, it's humility, it's thinking of others beyond yourself. The opposite of that is the hedonistic spirit where all you do is focus on yourself. And you don't care about the needs of others. Notice James describes the spirit very well in verse 2 and 3. And I wish, I just wish I had two hours to unpack this. But I'll just say this. There are two things that James says in here that captures the hedonistic spirit. The first one is envy. You desire and do not have. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Envy. I'm not going to go into envy because Brad did such a wonderful job doing that last week, but you all know. Envy is at the heart of the hedonistic spirit. A desire to have what doesn't belong to you. But there's something else that characterizes a hedonistic spirit. Notice with me in verse number three, he says... 
um, at the end of, sorry, of verse number two, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here's what he's saying. Number one, you don't really care what God has to say about your desires. Because you know he won't give it to you. And the reason why God won't give it to you, because all you will do is abuse it like the prodigal son. I told someone recently I would make an awful millionaire. I would love to be a millionaire, but I'd make an awful one. Why? Because if I had that kind of money, God knows I wouldn't give 10% to the church. And I wouldn't give it to all the missionaries. I would claim to give it to them. And so he wouldn't give it to me. You see, you have to learn the nature of your heart. Because if you give a Christian a Bible enough time, we could justify anything. We can. We can. Intelligent Christians, reformed Christians, southern Christians, you give us a Bible and enough time, we can justify just about every behavior. James is saying that the reason why we do that is because we have this heathenistic desire to please ourselves. We love to say the Holy Spirit is leading me to do this. We have to be careful about that code language. We have to be. Because we can use that to justify anything. And that's why the community of believers are so important. Because they hem us in. And that's why God's word is so important. Because it hems us in. This is what James is saying. Now. Having a hedonistic spirit doesn't just hinder your Christian walk. No, 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 no. It does something so much worse than that. It threatens to cut off the very lifeblood of the Holy Spirit. In Luke 8, when Jesus talked about the parable of the sower, he said, you know, there's some seeds. When the sower goes out and he's sowing the seeds, he says, the first one falls on, on stony ground, Right? And that, that amount that's spent on stony ground, it didn't, even, it didn't even blossom because it didn't have roots to fall in. And then, of course, the third one, the third one was the one that fell on good soil and the seeds took root and went up. But that second one said, fell among thorns. And the thorns choked out the spiritual life in them. Do you know the three things Jesus said chokes out the spiritual life it's right in luke 8 anxiety and fears regarding this world the pursuit of riches and hedone passions the passion to please yourself that chokes the spiritual life out of us and it's by accident that the holy spirit In the same way air gives our body life, the Holy Spirit gives our spiritual life life. And therefore, when we are caught up in self to please self, it chokes out the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's why the call of the gospel is self-sacrifice and humility, because without it, you will choke out the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's point number one. Quickly, point number two. James says this. Why is it so dangerous? Now, that in and of itself is dangerous, but there's another reason why it's so dangerous. Look at verse number four. James says this. You adulterous people. 
You adulterous people. Now, look, when I first read that back, I'm like, oh, man, this is harsh. Imagine if adulterous people turned to Christ. You'd be like, oh, pastor, chill out. What's going on in this passage? Here's the thing. You cannot understand what James is saying here unless you understand the full concept of covenant. Covenant. Now, there are many wonderful uh, definitions for the covenant. O. Palmer Robinson in this book, Christ and the Covenant, says it's bond and blood sovereignly applied. But at root, a covenant is a relationship. When I teach my children the children's catechism, they describe the covenant as a relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his blood. And so I teach my children that a covenant at root is a relationship, a deep relationship. Now, you and I have many relationships. I do. You know, I have a relationship with a bank. I have a relationship with Amazon. I have a relationship with a at least not here, not anymore, as you can tell, right? I have all sorts of relationships. But hear me today, there's one relationship that trumps every other relationship, and that's marriage. 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 My marriage is designed by God to be over every other relationship I have. In fact, just recently, Theresa and I, um, we, we've been married about 12, 13 years. We got, um, we got our first home about four years into our marriage. And me and her joked around that, hey, like, we're signing a contract with the bank for like 15, 30-odd years. This is a long time, right? And so when we bought our first home, we... We, um, we're about six, seven months into the, the, the mortgage, and we get a letter saying that our loan has been sold. And I was like, our loan sold? You know what I didn't do? I didn't pick up the phone and say, adulterers, how dare you? We've been faithful to you for the past seven months. We paid on time. We kept our end of the bargain. Why are you selling our loan? I didn't say that didn't I say that? Because who the covenant was with and the basis of the covenant. See, I understand that my relationship with my wife is different from the relationship with my bank. That the basis of my relationship with the bank is transactional. They gave me money to buy a home and I give them their money back. But the relationship with my wife is one of love and mutual submission and respect. Not only that, but it's who, right? The bank is not a person. Now, I know the Supreme Court said otherwise. I'm not speaking on that, so just leave that aside for the moment. But my wife is a person. My wife is a person. And so, therefore, my relationship with her deepens. And it goes even further than that. I wish I had the time to talk about all the ways my wife has influenced my behavior. I wasn't even reformed when I met my wife. Through her godly character and speaking to me about the reformed faith, I realized beauty and wonder that's in the reformed faith. Because of my wife, I speak differently. I act differently. I think differently. Before I go somewhere, I call my wife and tell her where I'm going. My wife governs 
patterns my thoughts and my actions, and I do with her too. Why? Because we're in union together. We're in a marriage together. What James is saying, and my wife pointed this out to me. He said, Dennis, if two people that are imperfect can have such an impact on one another, where we change the way one another thinks, dress, acts, solve one another on major decisions, if we who are imperfect have that kind of relationship with each other, what about our covenant with the Lord? What about our union with the Lord? Even more so, should our union with Christ dominate our thinking, that then becomes the most important relationship we can have. Jesus should govern how we spend our money, where we go, what we think about, and how we think about it. Don't overcomplicate the Christian life. Those of us that are in a relationship and who are married know for a fact that there are certain things you would not do because you knew it displeases your spouse. How much more you who are in union with Jesus should be concerned about what he thinks, about what he wants, about pleasing him. That's why James says, you adulterous, because they are acting like unfaithful spouses. No one in this room who's married, and I've known you all for a while, would ever cheat on your spouse. And James is saying, why, why would you? with your hedonistic spirit. You say, Pastor Dennis, that's extreme. You're correct. And the extremity of this, or the reason why this seems so extreme, is because we live in a culture that's devalued marriage. In James's day, marriage was the building block of every society, every group of people. To them, marriage was the most central relationship there was. And so it's not, what Jesus is doing here is exactly what the Old Testament prophets did. He's reminding Israel that they are in covenant with God, but now he's reminding us that we're in covenant with Christ. That's why it's called union with Christ. We're supposed to be of one flesh with Christ. That's why we tell you to pray, because then you talk to him. That's why we say read your Bibles, because then you know his will for your life. That's why we tell you commune with him through worship, because then you're experiencing him. None of that's strange if you think of it like a marriage. Who in here doesn't talk to their spouse? Who in here doesn't uh, visit with their spouse and spend time with their spouse? If you have a problem and you should. But nowadays Christians say, well, I, you know, I don't have to go to church. I don't have to spend my money, uh, give my money to church. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. That's a misunderstanding of what the union is. It's not a matter of have to. It's a matter of you want to. In the same way, I want to be with my wife. I yearn for her if I'm not around her. The Bible, James is saying, we should have that yearning and that passion for Jesus. Of course, it'll look different, but it all should be the same. And so James says, you adulteresses, because we're acting like unfaithful spouse. Incidentally, that's why in the rest of verse number four and five, uh, in verse of verse number four, James says this, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
What is friendship in the world? Gee, the, the idea there is flirting. Now, what is world? World simply, the world doesn't mean people. World means way of thinking and lifestyle. When you and I act like hedonists, selfish, self-serving, instead of being loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and as yourself, James is saying that is a hedonistic spirit, and that's akin to cheating. Beloved, they, those are powerful words that James is using. But, but remember, James is just using this as a metaphor, a much needed metaphor. Now, he goes on to say in verse number five, or do you suppose it is, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made in us? What is James saying there? Like any spouse who is seeing the affection that rightly belongs Look, there are two types of jealousy. There's the bad kind and the good kind. The bad kind of jealousy is the kind of jealousy where we see something that somebody else has and wants it. We get jealous because they have it. But the good kind of jealousy happens in a covenant union where the love that belongs to you, the care that belongs to you, is being given to another. Now, let me pause here and say... (laughs) Even like that, some of you here, like, pastor says it's okay that I'm jealous. Okay, point, let, me, let, me point, let me pause here and say this. Even the kind of jealousy that, that's allowed can be sinful. People have used that kind of jealousy to control other people and to make other people's lives miserable. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the healthy kind of jealousy where if you yearn to be in union with someone, of course, you're going to be jealous and upset if you see that love and that care being given to another. And that's what James is saying in this passage. That's why it's so dangerous, that spirit, because we are giving our affections over to someone else. Now, the last thing I'll say quickly is this. How is it that the Holy Spirit works in us to produce a singleness of heart and mind toward the Lord. Notice verse 6 and following. And by the way, notice the language, the covenant language that's been given here. He says, even though at times our hearts can be hedonistic, where we're giving over to the pleasures of this world, and we're not always in tune with Christ, God gives more grace. Grace here has the idea that God is always willing to bring us back into union with him. Always willing, even though our hearts stray constantly, he's always willing to renew that covenant. And so he says, uh, he gives more grace. Notice the language of the covenant. Grace, humility, submission, drawing near to God, cleansing hands. All of these words are words that must happen for covenant renewal. with humility. Establish that commitment with her. And let me say this in closing. 
One of the things, and I wish I could go more into that, but remember I said how the Holy Spirit does the work. These are just ways in which we do it. How does the Holy Spirit do that? Here's how. If you take your Bible and read Leviticus chapter 21, it's, it, it goes through and talks about the priest and how the priest must live a consecrated life. And one of the things that, that I found that was perplexing for years for me was when I read the priest couldn't marry someone, a woman, who was divorced, who had been defiled, and who was a prostitute because they were considered unclean and therefore soiled the priest. And I got to thinking that, wait a minute, Rahab, when she came into the family of God, the family of the Jews, she could be a priest because she would defile the priest. So instead, she married a man from the tribe of Judah. You will have to see where I'm going with this. Because 20 plus generations later, she would have a descendant who would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this priest will never, ever, ever cast out someone who's unclean. In fact, he did the opposite. Even though we were unclean, he said, come. Come to me. I will enter into covenant and union with you. Yes, the Old Testament priests, after the order of Levi, not do what I could do. I can bring you to me regardless of how unclean you are. Why? Because I can make you clean. No Old Testament prophet made anyone clean. They could only pronounce someone clean. But this priest, this kingly priest, after the order of Melchizedek, through the power of the Holy Spirit, when he in with you, he makes you clean. Clean. And not not. He has the power to make you clean always. And ultimately present you faultless before the throne of grace. So the call to draw near, the call to be clean, the call of humility is what you've been given the power to do because you're in union with Christ. And even now as we partake of the Lord's Supper, this is like a covenantal sign of consummation in which now we are brought near and now we commune with the one we are in a spiritual one flesh union with. Let's pray. Father, indeed, these are truths that are too high and lofty for us. But, Lord, the, the simplicity of the truth is this. We are in union with you. Our hearts are at war inside of us because we constantly want to go astray. We constantly want to be the prodigal. We constantly want to be like the unfaithful spouse. But I'm so thankful that you left with us, in us, the Holy Spirit that reminds us that Jesus is our great high priest that is wedded to us, that has the power to make us clean.
and he has, and he continues to give. Thank you for your provision of grace. Help us now, your people, to walk in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.